health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Welcome back to a new series of I Am. It's all about uncovering the boundlessness of who we are and the new space in our lives that appears with it. And the first guest to get us going along that road is Peter Crone, the Mind Architect a man who helps many people, including plenty in elite sport and in business, to transcend their limits and find new dimensions to their performance, to their relationships and to life itself. But what these people have to say about Peter and the impact he's had upon them is so impressive, to say the least. I'm really enjoying hearing from anyone listening in, so if something arises in you, thoughts, feelings or anything that you feel you want to know more about, do not hesitate to email me uh, on hello at iampodcast.co.uk or just leave a comment in the review section on Apple Podcasts. My name's Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Peter Crone. Peter Crone, thank you so much for being here on the I Am Podcast. Welcome. How are you today? How's it going? I'm doing well, mate. Very, uh, very happy to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, me too. Me too. I think it's going to be an awesome conversation. There's so much I, I want to get straight into, but uh, as always with these things, it might be helpful just to get a pick up a bit of a an idea of what your passion and speciality is and how you fit into this idea of human potential. Obviously, that's a big question at the end there. So, but what is it you do and what is it you're into? I mean, it really is in that realm. I, I've got the moniker of the mind architect, which was sort of self-created. I felt any other title was a bit contaminated. You know, sports psychologist, spiritual teacher, happiness guru. Uh, it sort of led the audience to believe something about me that might not necessarily be true. And so I came up with the mind architect, which I really felt was accurate because I'm really looking at that space between the ears, which to me is the most powerful piece of equipment we all have as humans, uh, sadly not maximized or not usually used in a beneficial way. And then architecture was sort of helping to redesign the deep subconscious patterns that we tend to have as human beings with these primal intentions of survival. So in one of my catchphrases, as I say, I don't solve people's problems, I dissolve them. For me, life is a process of revelation. It's about revealing our true nature, which we could say is our potential, which I also think is sort of somewhat boundless, right? Like when someone says, like, I'm going to help you realize your potential, it's a beautiful intention, but it sort of seems to imply there's this finite expression of it. And I, I don't think there is. So what I do is I help people get out of their own way, whether they be athletes like yourself or entertainers, stay-at-home parents or executives, it doesn't really matter. Like, if you're human, you suffer, and I'm here to help mitigate, remove that. So much of that is already ringing uh, 
very pleasant alarm bells because it's right on the mark of what we're after. And I think I heard yeah. a guru not long ago sort of saying that their role was not to answer questions, but to burn them away in yeah. the same sort of method. And I love that. And the concept of revealing potential, they also the idea about realizing potential is at what point does anyone say, right now I'm, I'm in my potential. Can you feel it? You know, you, you, you're never there. I'd love to sort of get into that with you. And, and with sports people, you mentioned about that ancient kind of survival instinct yeah. almost ruling us. And the word that comes to me when we're talking about potential is often getting involved in limits. We need to understand the limits as well. Yeah. With regard to limits, what are those issues that when people come, you're kind of like, here we are, that survival side, you know, what, what is it you're, you're encountering there? I mean, in one word, I think the predominant issue that any human being deals with, regardless of whether they're a professional athlete like you were or many of my clients, is fear, right? Often people will make the distinction between fear and love. I don't particularly like that one. I feel that love is sufficiently big that it makes space for fear is the way that I teach it. But what most people, whether you're a three-year-old who's concerned that they're going to be caught because they ate cookies before dinner, you know, there's, <laughs> a, there's this internal trepidation and it's a sliding scale right like we could have panic attacks and terror at one end and then people struggle with anxiety which i help people understand and completely dissolve so maybe mild concern apprehension nervousness right we use different words and obviously i traffic in language but they point to different iterations of fundamentally this experience of fear it could be someone driving home from the golf course and he knows he's late He's had a couple of pops and he doesn't want to get in trouble with the missus. You know, it's not life-threatening, but it is still nonetheless creating this sympathetic response, fight or flight, which dumps cortisol and adrenaline into the body, which over time is deleterious to someone's physicality. So that's way that I help people understand why they get sick. But then if I'm dealing with an athlete who's getting paid, like one of my NBA guys, basketball, was getting paid close to $20 million a year. And he couldn't make a free throw, or at least his averages were half of the league average, 35%, when his peers were making typically around 75%. And that differential, that delta, was oftentimes the difference in a game. So the pressure that he was feeling created anxiety, which then cascaded into his life, his relationships. And he was starting to not sleep so well. And you can probably relate to this, right? Like there's more at stake, but the underlying foundation to answer your question is predominantly fear which is really these primal patterns that we have as human beings which is to survive and to survive we want a sense of belonging we want a sense of worth we want a sense of safety and that's really what's been challenged the last couple of years you know if we get into that at all but why there's been so much mental sickness that's been going on is because those primal desires of a human being have all been whether we uh, agree intentionally but they've been stripped away you know so Fear is, fear is the main thing that I'm coming up against and helping people realize that's their limits, right? That's the constraint they're in. And I'm helping them discover freedom on the other side of that. It's interesting because when we're talking about that fear, I look at myself when I was much younger and I operated without that fear. And then suddenly, a bit later on, it's there. Why can some people stand there and hit a free throw in basketball and not have it and someone mm -hmm. else does? What is behind that fear? It's a great question. And, and it really obviously is going to be subjective to that person's own journey. I tend to download insights, distinctions, and quotes. And so one of the quotes that comes to mind as you ask the question is, past hurt informs future fear. 
So if you look at that as a formulaic creation of fear, so past hurt, disappointments, failures, injuries, embarrassments, these are what I would put under the auspices of a past hurt. Like the first time a child got up in front of the school classroom and had to do a presentation and everybody laughed might seem pretty benign, but for that child, the impact was embarrassment. And so now they might become an executive 20, 30 years later who's doing a presentation on a topic that they are well-versed in. They're an expert. Like I actually helped someone at Twitter, for example, who was a high-end executive, but really struggled with social anxieties and presentation because of a past childhood experience, which was actually around a coach that had screamed at them because they'd sort of let down the team at the end of the game. And so there was this underlying concern for don't do anything wrong and don't mess up, right, which everybody can relate to. Conversely, when you find some of these athletes, you know, staying in the realm of sports, as that's where we've started, who have been talented their entire lives, they may not have the same trauma and therefore they don't have the same degree of fear because there's a deeper confidence. I've always been the best, you know, when I was at primary school, secondary school, a university. And so they've developed a stronger foundation that doesn't invite so much concern. Conversely, that same athlete can equally develop fear for expectation right? Because I've always been the best, then there's this expectation. So that in a funny way creates this uh, self-imposed oppression or pressure that I'm supposed to do something now. So it's a different flavor of fear, but it can create the same physiological impacts where it can impede performance. So it does come down to the individual. The way that my work works is I look at these, what I call the primal prisons of the subconscious. And I assert there's 10, you know, this is what I'm writing about. One that everyone can relate to is I'm not good enough or I'm not enough. And so there's different adaptations to that behavioral survival mechanism. Someone might become a perfectionist as an adaptation. Someone might become a people pleaser as an adaptation. Somebody might continue self-sabotage to reinforce the fact that they're not good enough so they get to be right. That's one of the <laughs> sort of bizarre mechanisms of the ego. It's like, I'll prove to you that I can fuck it up. You know, it's like, well, that's really <laughs> inspiring. Uh, but um, people deal with that. So so I think, you know, there's different flavors of fear. It depends to what degree. Sometimes yeah. it seems sort of counterintuitive, but the degree to which someone went through real trauma as a child could actually sometimes mitigate fear in future life because it's almost like they face the worst already. I have to help a lot of people, not have to, but I do help a lot of people who've been through physical abuse, sexual abuse. And they become almost like there can be a numbing, which isn't healthy. There can be a resignation. But they've also got this sort of external fortitude where they've learned that they can basically get through anything. It doesn't mean they have joy or fulfillment in their life, but they have a different flavor of fear, which is more resignation. They're like, well, whatever. I've had the worst done already. So, But yeah, with regards to sports, I find that the biggest precursor to fear is past disappointments, you know, like losses, uh, like the basketball player. When I was working with baseball teams, they're always curious, like, why does a team go on a winning streak or a losing streak? And explaining those phenomenon of why that happens. The losing streak is self-fulfilling. You know, you've done something you don't want, and now you're trying to avoid it in the next game. If you don't avoid it, then it's accumulative, and now it becomes worse, you know. so What's coming to mind in me a little bit there is, I recognize immediately in me past disappointments. Mm-hmm. and my obsessive nature 
was just to try and solve them. Yeah. But from the insurmountable issue that they're in the past. Right. And it's a naive kind of way. The answer is I want to go back there and change events, or I want to go and visit every person that was watching and be able to put my case forward for actually show what I'm all about. And I guess that's kind of the way I eventually got to the next step was that I'll do that. Maybe they'll be watching when I do this next thing and they'll realize that I, yeah, almost to, to prove that point, but that feeling of not good enough, that kind of disconnection with self-worth, I think has been massively underneath the fear and whatever that involved in my life, but also looking at the way that I dealt with it. One of the things that came up and it's a phrase that I hear a lot and it just came up to me then. And I thought, how strange is that? Is that time is a great healer. Yeah. But what I feel I did was that I, reacted and reacted and reacted and reacted until the reactions just came less severe enough for me to become more concerned about future events that took my mind off whatever and then suddenly you're kind of like oh i'm done with that now but of course i wasn't done with it the same thing comes back and this is another question i'm interested in is do you find that with different kinds of triggers in all kinds of areas of life it doesn't have to just be oh when i'm in the sports arena trying to do this i feel this fear and insufficiency or whatever it is but actually no i get these weirder senses in different areas where i feel this about myself trying to trace things back it almost starts with that sense of not enough and then when it's Mm -hmm. kind of reinforced in different areas of what comes next, you know, whether it's relationships with other pupils in your school life or whether it's in terms of hobbies that you take on or a different understanding. It seems that people can become so complex, but can it all be sort of traced back or at least helped by focusing on big moments? I think all the above, honestly, the the term that comes to mind that I use is frequency precedes form which may sound kind of poetic, but I think based on what I understand about the work you've done, you would understand that. So frequency precedes form, meaning the energetic signature, the vibration at which we function is the precursor to how our life manifests, right? So if somebody's in the frequency of I'm not good enough, then they're already sort of in a avoidant energy, right? Which you spoke to, like you were trying to avoid doing the same mistake, or you feel that you would have to plead your case to somebody to explain what you did. Like, that's an exhausting way to live, right? And I'm sure you're well aware of it because you lived it, right? (laughs) And many of my athletes would probably have a lot of compassion for you because they do the same until we break them out of it. I'll speak to that in a minute. We'll hopefully give you some relief personally. But if we're in a container, and it's hard for people sometimes to imagine because you can't see it, but like the subconscious prisons that I speak to, they're literally pieces of program. So let's take I'm not enough because we've talked about that. If you're living in the world of I'm not enough, it carries a particular vibratory state, which is you're very self-conscious. So as I said earlier, if someone feels they're not enough, they will develop compensation patterns if they're leaning into the trying to avoid that experience, which most people do. They'll become perfectionist people pleasers. They will sort of sacrifice their own choices to keep a partner happy, a boss happy, a parent happy. They might take on a career that they think their parents want them to do, even though they're really passionate about art. They'll become a doctor because they're concerned about that energy of not enoughness. Now, equally, it can go the negative direction. As I said earlier, if someone's not enough, they might find alcohol. They might find drug abuse. They might find prescription drugs. They might sabotage relationships. They might be 
unprofessional in the workplace so that they do get fired, not necessarily as a conscious choice, but it continues to reinforce their own view of themselves, right? So it doesn't have to be one major event. Somebody might simply have an older sibling who was the better athlete, was better at school, they got better grades, and that was sufficient for them to notice, however subtle, that their parents gave their sibling a bit more attention because of their accomplishments. And relatively speaking, the younger sibling, it could be the older sibling, it doesn't matter, but they felt rather inadequate relative to their sibling. So it wasn't that their parent hit them and said, you're useless. And, you know, that can also be a traumatic way of creating the feeling of not enoughness. But it doesn't, I just want people to understand it doesn't have to be dramatic. Then what happens to answer your question is it tends to be accumulative because even though it makes no sense, the number one prerogative of the ego is to be right. And this is what we see between nations, between religions, between spouses, between family members is, no, my view is right, yours is wrong. <laughs> and sometimes it will lead to massacres, genocide and killing, you know, it's like bloodshed. Yeah, right? it's course, horrific. Yeah. But just to understand the dynamic is the same, even if it's between you and a sibling, you and a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever, you're still being driven, unless you become aware of the pattern, by your own view of life. We think that the view of life we have is right. That's how we develop oftentimes a sense of self-worth. And then if someone has a view that's in any way contradictory to that or different, then we tend to create some sort of resistance or hostility, right? So now that view that we have of being not enough at the deepest level is accumulative. We will continue, one of my other quotes, which is probably one of the most popular ones out there, I say, life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. So if your version of not free is I'm not good enough, you will continue to attract people and circumstances to reinforce that until you investigate the deeper validity of that statement, which is fundamentally it's a lie. There's nothing not good enough about you. It's based in linguistics, right? It's literally words in your head, but it's incredible how much it can absolutely destroy somebody's life, right? Uh, and when you really see it, like the response you've gotten, which is, you know, beautiful with the laughter, is you realize it's kind of ridiculous, right? That I, I am willing to completely sabotage my career, my relationships, my health, my income based on some words in my head. So once you see that it's not true, then that's the dissolution of it. And that's when we start to step into the world that I show people, which is freedom. So it doesn't have to be major. Obviously, some people have major events. For me personally, like my mom died when I was seven. My dad went to work one day when I was 17, never came back. So my particular deep fear was of loss. And the way that manifested was the first time that I fell in love, you know, sort of late 20s. The relationship was beautiful. She adored me. But my predominant driving mechanism for the relationship was don't lose her. Right, until I saw the mechanism. So that was a bit more traumatic for me, the death of parents. But most people's incidents in their childhood seem pretty benign, but they're accumulative. And so that accumulation leads to somebody's belief systems, which creates their identity. And then before they know it, their identity is always trying to reconcile its own existence by being right about its perspective. The amazing power of that identity wanting to be right and essentially conquer or get through a situation unchanged is immense. I mean, I remember in my life, one of those defense mechanisms was perfectionism. You know, I mm -hmm. need to show the world this image that creates that adoration or whatever it feels that, that defines that sense of now I'm worthy. 
type of thing. But the yeah. thing was, you'd go out and play and, and you'd make mistakes. I would then go into the next game thinking, I can't afford not to be perfect. Even though the weekend before, I'd clearly not been perfect. But there was this yeah. almost total ignorance of that happening. Yeah. Total denial to be like, oh no, you know, I'm perfect again. And I can't afford to let this go. Whereas all it took was one step of awareness to be like, geez, you know, it didn't happen. And here I am with all the same opportunities yeah. and all the same potential there to go out and express myself. I remember in my childhood, I, I, you know, what you mentioned about one of those defense mechanisms, one of them for me was, was a bit of a savior archetype. Yeah. I wanted to be someone that put themselves completely on the line. I kind of found most of my sense of feeling worthy came through pity almost. Right. I wanted people to see that I was a bit of a martyr. I was willing to go and take out everyone's suffering and put myself in the hardest places and what have you. And there was a savior archetype about it. And I also remember there's two things that were interesting to me when I was younger. One was sport and getting to the very top of sport. The other was the military. And now that didn't last as long because the sporting one was more so. But I remember speaking to someone saying, you know, that maybe there was some kind of, using his word, was karmic kind of playing out here. And it's great that it's played out on the sports field yeah, and, and not necessarily on the battlefield. And it made me sort of think, you know, what's behind that passion in us individually and that calling and how important is that energy for actually meeting those, those life moments which challenge us so heavily, but then also the energy to then go beyond them? It's a great question. I mean, what comes to mind, as I said, I like to speak in distinctions. And what I'm hearing is the differential between reaction and creation. So I would say both are a play in any human being's life. The predominant energy is reactive, right? So you, for example, your career, you did something that you discern as not perfect. First of all, perfect is completely subjective. It's of course, a complete yeah. disservice to a human being. Again, one of my quotes, I say, please never become perfect. You'll have no one to relate to. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, I admire the commitment. That's something I can talk about with you as someone who knows the sports world and obviously had incredible accomplishments. You know, my quote from my athletes is fully committed, totally unattached. And that seems like an oxymoron or slight paradox where I want my athletes to be completely invested in their process, their preparation, and then their performance as they are playing, but unattached to an outcome. Now, what I hear in Johnny is that there was an attachment, and that's where the suffering mm. comes in, right? That I didn't do, we didn't get the result we wanted. And so now you've lost the actual ability to commit to something because you're too busy weeping over past traumas, right? However mild it might have been. So that's where the losing streak comes in for teams is that they've actually not been able to reconcile, integrate and accept what happened. So now they're compromised going into the next game because conversely, if you win something, there's no holding, right? Because you got the result you wanted and you keep moving. So that's why there tends to be a winning streak, as I spoke to earlier, just to give people the understanding of it. But the fundamental desire of a human being is to be loved and accepted at a very deep level we're all those little kids running around hoping that someone just like loves us and accepts us because belonging is such a primal need if you're not part of the tribe you get kicked out of the clan you know back in the days that our dna has got these primal patterns still established you, you basically die and so that seems dramatic in this day and age because, you know, you go, even if you have a fight with the missus, you go and sleep on your mate's couch. Like you're, you're not going to be eaten by a tiger, hopefully. <laughs> but the feeling is still associated with that primal survival instinct. 
much, right? So, you know, for you with that underlying current of you call martyrdom or, you know, wanting to get everything perfect, what I really hear is a kid, and this would be another one of these primal patterns, who didn't want to do anything wrong, you know, and that probably without knowing you, but reading your energy, very sweet, very kind, very caring guy, and I don't know anything about you personally, really, but my assertion is there's a little boy in there who was so petrified of doing anything wrong, and we could talk about it or not, you know, I don't necessarily hear you being reprimanded very heavily by parents or maybe one of your parents was a bit sick and there was a lot at stake if you didn't do something. Like, again, I'm just sort of making aspersions here about how that pattern can get created. But somebody who is very insistent on not making mistakes or we could say being perfect is usually being driven by a deeper concern that if they do something wrong, there's consequences that they don't want. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? Intangible nature of that consequence that makes it so scary. Because, like you said before, the fear is not of something. As you mentioned, there isn't a fear of, ah, you know, being reprimanded or this will happen. It's not of something. The fear is actually some kind of dark unknown. And that's one of the most interesting things for me is like one of my driving forces behind all those kind of perfectionisms or not making mistakes, which is a classic, you know, the amount of energy that was poured over hugely inconsequential actions but my word they lasted for months and months Mm -hmm. and months they required you know kind of almost like geez we need to take you to go and see someone why will you not let this go but the underlying force i was running from was a sense of doom but there wasn't any tangible understanding as what that doom was it was just this sense of i like to call it that that disconnect from the self-worth which left you feeling like i'm not all right here and that's what drives that dedication to be able to kick a ball for three hours and everyone's saying, geez, you know, look at the dedication. Whereas I'm looking, thinking, do you know what would be tough for me is not doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Would, that would leave me because, a shivering wreck, yeah. Yeah, because you'd be left with the concern. You know, at least if you're in action, there's a feeling that you might be in some way mitigating the, the worst case scenario, right? Like again, one of my quotes was say, most people are trying to avoid a bad future that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you could yeah. probably relate to that, yeah. right? So that tends to also be, unfortunately, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, so with my going back to my basketball example, the guy that I was helping, who was shooting 35% relative to the league's average of 75, I said to him, and it was early on in the season, I said, if I told you that for the rest of the season, you shot the league average, 75%, how do you feel? And you can see the brain struggling because on one level, there's this disbelief, right? I'm like, yeah, but you know I'm shooting 35. So now I'm relying on the power of creation to go back to my point about reaction or creation, creating the imagination of an incredible season ahead of him. And once he started to play with that, he's like, fuck, I feel amazing. And I'm like, okay, when you feel amazing, how do you feel in your body? It's like, I mean, his breathing was changing. He felt relaxed. Like physiologically, you could argue he's literally a different human being who that kind of human being knows how to shoot a free throw. When you're in fight or flight, there's tension. Breathing is short and shallow. His mechanics are going to be different. And so there's less likelihood of him being able to do what he does when he's just warming up and relaxed. So that's where we can start to play with, okay, everybody's got a perception of the future. The degree to which it's negative is the degree to which in present time you're living in fear, anxiety, and trepidation. The degree to which you think it's something that's going to work out in your favor is the degree to which you live in excitement and confidence and positivity. Either way, 
the one brain is creating an imagined future. Yeah. So I'm helping people to understand the mechanics of that. Now, you don't want to get blasé. Some people can become overly confident or arrogant. Oh, yeah, it's going to work out. No, not if you don't prepare properly either. Yeah. Right? So there's that fine line. I tend to want to encourage people to simply be where they are. Right. So the future is unknown to your point about this doom and gloom. Yeah, that's that's something that every human being deals with because the nature of life is uncertainty. Right. You and I could have a chat in a week, in a month, in five years. We're still not, not going to know what's going to happen tomorrow. That is inbuilt just as fire is hot. It's not going to like they're not going to make a news announcement. Oh, my gosh. Did <laughs> you just find out new like fire just became cold? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So an inherent part of the human experience is this dichotomy between the nature of life, which is uncertainty and the human predisposition, which is I want to be safe. And you can immediately see the conflict. And then you, you add performance pressure and, and high stakes like you. It just exacerbates the wanting to know that it's going to be okay. But it doesn't in any way offset the fact that nobody knows. And that, to me, is why sports are so beautiful, because we don't know what's going to happen. Why is there so many bets and the speculations and the probabilities? And the, that is all part of the play of trying to figure it out which can be fun if you understand it within the container of, say, something like sports. But when it comes down to the deeper primal patterns of survival, not knowing what's going to happen against the backdrop of uncertainty whilst my primal focus is to be safe, that creates anxiety like you wouldn't believe, right? So you, by the sounds of it, you know, were working predominantly with the latter, which is you had this beautiful drive for a sport that you were committed to, you're obviously incredibly talented at, but a mind that was preoccupied with potentially worst-case scenarios. Now, we could argue that at some level, that was what created your discipline or your three hours of kicking. But at great cost, you know, you're strong, you're young. But to what deleterious effects to your physiology, to your emotions, to your romantic relationships, to other relationships, because you were so intent on trying to avoid something that at the time you were oblivious to was your own imagination trying to avoid a future that you were creating of your own unconscious volition, right? So that mechanism is what creates a lot of sickness for people mentally and physically. The, the people, the guys, I mean, I coach now and I coach through such a different lens to which I performed. I'm very much in the sensitivity of who I'm with and how, I'm, how that day is shaping of the now moment, you know, what's coming up right here and now. What's yeah. the, whereas had I, had I done it whilst I was playing, I'd have spent a week writing the script for the session before even meeting who it was I was about to coach yeah. you know, and what they yeah, needed, yeah, yeah. what they needed for yeah. me. But, but one of the things that comes up is that, you know, before a person is about to kick a ball is the thing, well, if you knew already, this was going to be the most beautiful thing and it was going to serve you in such a beautiful way, how would you go about engaging in it? And of course, obviously that's the message that I wanted as a player. I just, I couldn't buy into it. But when you're on that role, that winning streak mm -hmm. or in that yeah. zone of just, that's the, the way it feels. But I'm interested now to go into that because for me, that's a sense of trust there. And I think there's a big difference in interpretation coming here of what I feel is trust and what I experience myself hugely, but definitely in changing or sporting change, or something like, which is self-belief. And I feel like the two aren't the same thing. I watched a lot of people go through self-belief, which looked so fragile. You see someone in the process of almost encouraging self-belief, 
as if that's a movement towards confidence and invincibility. And in fact, the actual look of it shakes up the entire changing room. Everyone's looking at it and it makes them more anxious, more fragile because they're looking at a leader saying, what I'm seeing is anything but that kind of assurity, that presence, that grounding. Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. Yeah, what, where do you sit with that? I know you, I've, I've really enjoyed some of the stuff you're talking about, just even in positive thinking. It's one of those things that comes out so often, but it's also, I think, quite damaging. Sometimes self-belief can be something that can really lead people away from the space that perhaps they're desperate to sort of enjoy. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, if we were to keep it relatively simplistic, self-belief is very subjective, whereas trust, or some people might use the word faith if they have a particular religion, that's not my bent, but I use the word trust like you, is more sort of exogenous. It's the collective or it's the universe, right? So I often joke that I'm a trust fund baby, not because I was left a penny by my parents who passed and we weren't wealthy, but I trust in the universe. Yeah, okay. And that's the fund that I pull from, right? And then within any kind of discipline, certainly at the level you were performing, there has to be a component of self-discipline. You can't just let rest on the laurels of like, oh yeah, life's got my back. Don't worry about it. That equally is not going to end too well, right? So it is this beautiful process of co-creation. It reminds me of when I was at uni, I went to Loughborough. And this is really where my journey started at the ripe old age of 19, talking about consciousness with my friend Guy as we sat under a tree, you know, while everyone else was getting bladdered, which, you know, we would do periodically. But we also sat and would talk about the meaning of life. So I can remember he had this wonderful expression. And again, just to be clear, neither of us were religious, but he used this term of like, yeah, believe in Allah, but tie up your camels, Right. And it was just a wonderful kind of visual for me of like, yeah, believe in the greater good of God, of the universe, of consciousness, but do your part. Don't be an idiot. Right. So I think in the context of you in a changing room and you're as a leader, there's a degree to which when I work with leaders, whether it be CEOs, coaches, captains, whoever it might be, who's at the bow of the boat in their particular industry or their team, it's yes. You've got to have your own discipline in the way that you manage your own process, your practice, your preparation. And that goes beyond just kicking balls. It could be sleep, nutrition, your degree to which you're self-expressed in your relationships, all of that. And have faith and trust in those around you. And that's why I love team dynamics and working with teams, whether it's corporations or sports teams, is to understand that there are certain hierarchical needs that have to be met emotionally for that unit to work together right and trust to me is ironically one of the first ones because if you don't have trust in a team dynamic then people don't have a voice people don't tell you what's really going on and if they don't tell you what's really going on whether it be to the skipper the coach or whoever they don't feel invested because they don't actually have any anything at stake in terms of their own opinion and then if they're not invested, then they're not going to necessarily commit. So there are these, like, they're subtle, but they're really important working with the team to make sure that there is fundamentally a copiesthetic energy of trust. This is like a family. And sometimes the conversations we have can be heated, but that's more healthy than suppression of opinions. And now you've got backstabbing, whether it's actually spoken or just felt, because now you've got this differentiation and this the separation in the unit, right? So for someone like you, what I could hear without having been there or talking to you during the process 
is that you just took on way too much to yourself, right? That ended up being probably deleterious to you and the team because first of all, it's not functional. It's not all up to you, right? Secondly, the team might've felt somewhat inadequate relative to either your level of commitment, your passion, or your sense of dedication to an outcome that perhaps they felt they couldn't match, but they still played their part and they were integral in that. But it maybe sparked their own inner prisons of inadequacy or insecurity. It's such a fine balance when you're working in a team dynamic between the whole expression of like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? Like I'm sure you've heard that expression, yeah. meaning if you've got on whatever team, 11, 15, 9, whatever the sport is, if you collectively push all in the same direction, you will have more strength than if you were to take the individual strength of each person and add it together. And so that's a regularly known phenomenon in physics. So yeah, it's both. It's, it's a co-creation. You've got to have your own discipline. You're part of something. And yet there is the background confidence that if I'm not on my game for five minutes or five games, I'm supported. And that can breed a great deal of trust. It's really interesting because in a dynamic of a team, when I was the youngest and everyone around me automatically, I think, had that sense of we're the experienced leaders in this, we're the pillars, we're the kind of people directing it. It worked. Mm -hmm. But when I then became the oldest and the more experienced yeah. and I became the leader with that trust relationship, it didn't work. It just right. didn't work. And it caused all kinds of amazing things. And this is really interesting to me because I think this is one of the next directions of where this goes is that you see all these things happening around you and it just seems so real that it is an A plus B equals C causal material yeah. world thing oh, this person is being like this and that's doing this. It does. It's not a kind of, oh, hold on, what's my role in this, that awareness level. But it's so interesting because then those two periods of my career were separated by three and a half years of constant injury, which, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, suffering from the first part of yeah. drive, 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 breakdown. Immense stress during the recovery process, which meant no healing, followed by enormous pressure breakdown. So 13 or 14 injuries on the run without a break for four years. And in the middle of that, and at the very end at the beginning on the comeback was where it didn't work just because of the flip change. I was still in that energy of massive trust issues and whatever. But then at some point there's that exhaustion element yeah. where you just get to a point where you say, first of all, you get the message. You start playing with people, as I was very lucky to do, who are just that good. And you realize it's not worth me trying to do that. You're better than me. So you suddenly right. realize in your wisdom, I'll give mm -hmm. you the ball. And now I'm playing well just because I'm giving you mm -hmm. the ball. And you start, to sort of, you start to know your lane. You stay in your lane and what have you. And so it, it then finds its way. In. And I think for me, that process is a hugely humbling and at times humiliating one, but one that is always kind of working for me. I wish that I had the trust in that injury period to say, you know what, I'm taking a year out. I'm just taking a year out. I need to refresh. I need to come back with that childlike passion and reset and everything. But of course, the one thing that's been interesting to me, probably it's interesting talking about this because it's probably more prominent than I realized because other areas of my life were where I probably felt like I met bigger crises moments. 
And whether or not it was inspired by those immediately, whether or not it was a gradual thing, however it came about, but there was a change, a sudden shift where I suddenly realized it's got to be me. It's in me. And even still with that recognition or that realization, you're still finding yourself so much of the time in that blame game. Yeah. But then there comes another shift where suddenly, and this is really difficult to explain, I want to get you to talk about how can you get someone to turn inwards yeah. and start becoming more aware of inner sensations and allowing them and all these kind of things when actually it doesn't necessarily seem to be a teachable thing or is it something you can assist people in that journey with? You can. I mean, you spoke to many things there that I really want to address just both for yourself yeah, fire, and also in, the audience. But to, to answer the latter part of your question, I talk about either inspiration or intervention, right? So meaning in terms of how can you facilitate the shift in someone's awareness, right? So for you, going back to when you were competing and you were you know, being very open about how you were competing when you were the young buck and you came into a more veteran situation, it kind of worked. But then as you became the veteran and the older player, the onus was on you. You know, one of the things that I would point out for you if I was helping you personally is that you were stuck in the impression, the lie that it's up to you. Yeah, right? That's one of your mechanisms that is deleterious, not only to yourself, but all the injuries. And that's why you had those 14 plus injuries or whatever it was over that course of the time is because the stress, which can be both emotional, intellectual, or physiological, it tends to cascade that way. So even though you have a physical injury, it's usually because prior to that, your nervous system is working too hard, right? You're, there's, there's healthy stress, right? You go to the gym and you lift weights. There's that process of hormesis where you want to challenge, in this case, your muscles with a bit of resistance so that you come back stronger. But what most people do is they're beyond the thresholds of that healthy stress, and now something has to give out, right? Something has to break. Oftentimes, it starts emotionally. People are frustrated. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're angry. They're disappointed. They feel a sense of failure. That all seems relatively benign because it's just what I'm feeling. But your body is still keeping score. And if that's a, a continued process over time where you're having the disappointment, the feeling of extra pressure that it's incumbent upon you, which would have been your case, then literally your body can't sustain that stress. And usually if it's around joints, which I don't know what your injuries were, but it's interesting, joints tend to represent relationships. So when people have joint injuries, it's usually they're not fully connected with the people around them. There's a fragility in their joints, which is kind of fascinating, isn't it? So. Yeah. Anyway, to come back to the latter part of your question, yes, so my work is obviously more in the inspiration bucket versus the intervention. Inspiration is where how many kids watched you when you were playing? Even I'd seen your performances, and it's beautiful to watch an athlete in whatever your chosen sport of interest is do something so effortlessly, so gracefully, but you know there's such a deep-seated form of dedication and practice that can be inspiring. So a kid you know, watching a footy player, or watching someone like yourself, or there's an aspiration, right? So they're pulled into action because they're inspired by a possibility, right? So that's one form of tapping into there's something more here. There's something deeper. And I can start to look at, especially in this day and age at the professional level, if there's a professional team out there that doesn't have someone like me, a mind guy, they're, they're not going to be succeeding at this time. They know, you know, years gone by, fine. It was just sheer brute strength. It was talent that teams relied on. 
But now the playing fields are all so even. If you don't have the discernible difference of the mental edge, you're not going to make it. It's plain and simple. Then the other way that sadly most people have some sort of epiphany or self-awakening realization is through intervention, meaning life will give you the two by four around the face, right? <laughs> like if you're not ready to make a change because you're inspired to become a better version of yourself, that's more the creative energy. Then don't worry because life will break shit down for you, your body, your relationship, your bank account, your career, whatever it might be to make you look at yourself. Right? And that goes back to my quote earlier, where life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. It's like I use the metaphor of someone goes to a yoga class, and often many of my athletes would go, and I'd want them to have more mobility in their bodies. They might be strong as hell, and they've got a lot of power, but their actual flexibility and their ability to get into different positions was limited. And they say, shit, yoga's difficult. And I'm like, no, you're just stiff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? So the same with life. Life isn't difficult. It's just to what degree do you have mental limitations that create triggers that again get you upset. Now, people offset them with all sorts of things, unfortunately, these days. We have substances like alcohol, weed, medication, whatever it might be on the streets that people use to numb their pain, but they're not actually evolving. They're not dealing with anything until such time you have a heart attack. Your doctor's been telling you for a decade that maybe you need to cut back, your cholesterol's climbing, you've got more weight. But it takes a heart attack for that person to actually revisit their lifestyle and go, you know what? I'm soon to be a grandparent. I am a grandparent. What am I doing to myself? And their eating habits are out of control, probably based on deeper feelings of inadequacy. They found comfort in food. And eventually their body showed the accumulative effect of that emotional numbing, right? So that's the intervention way. Unfortunately, that's the predominant way that people have some kind of awakening. I think nowadays people are listening to more podcasts, things like this. They do understand the importance of mental health now, especially after the last two years where there's been so much devastation. And I think people are starting to become more proactive or creative and go, wait a minute, I'm a human being. I have inherent value. This is my one shot in this lifetime. Why wouldn't I take better care of myself and aspire to be a better person? But sadly, a lot of people, they still need the old proverbial two by four to wake them up. So they're the two main lanes by which people have some kind of inner awakening and awareness. Yeah, that's huge. I, uh, for me, I speak through my lens a lot. Obviously, it's the easiest way for me to be more insightful and I think get deeper into the subject matter and, and what have you. But there are two angles, I think, to this, or certainly way more than two, I'm sure. But one thing I've probably found it more difficult to to understand from my own perspective of life during my life is for me, it was the the achievement thing. That was the drive. Go out, prove yourself, yeah. prove your worth, find yeah. your worth. And of course that leads to the beautiful understanding, albeit painful and shocking when you get there at 24 and you've got everything you ever wanted and you're kind of like, Oh crikey, there's nothing here. What was I doing? You know? Yeah. And, and now what? And yeah. of course there's enough energy in you to say, well, the reason I'm not feeling great now is because I've only won one world cup. But if we win back to back world cups, of course that's yeah. it. And, and at some yeah. point there's a realization with me with injuries when I was told you're probably not going to play again, maybe two or three times, your chances you're not going to play again. You start to think, if this was it, would I look back and go, yeah, that was brilliant. I really made the most out. I'd look back and think, I'm not sure I've really been present for any of it. And suddenly you, right. you send to fast forward yeah. that to your deathbed and go, what's the difference here? What yeah. conversation is going to be different at hopefully 99 yeah. or whatever, where you look back and go, well, what did I do with this? And of course, it's not a case of looking back and saying, what have I got? That's CV. 
for you with people that talk about, because I'm aware of this with people, and this is another conversation, I'm sure, with people transitioning from professional sport to other careers or whatever, where suddenly for them, it was never been for me, but for them, it's suddenly like, well, what the hell is my passion now? What's my yeah. purpose? And for people that maybe aren't yeah. transitioning from a previous passion, they just don't seem to know what's my calling. We've spoken a lot about that kind of, geez, from moment one, I've known this is where I'm going. And then rugby finished for me. And, and I'm on this, I'm on this kind of beautiful drive to uncover more about the internal and, and the, where the limits are and everything. So there's the passion. But what about for people that don't have it and, and are asking, you know, what am I here for? How does that appear in your work? It appears a lot, especially when I help athletes who are transitioning out of being professionals where they're adored and they've got all the accolades and they've got the fancy wheels and the cars and the homes because of their income. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, who's the next best thing after them and <laughs> no one cares about them anymore, right? So I think really if we look at the main bucket that's being triggered, it's around self-worth, right? Around the prospect of who we are in terms of our value and our contribution to society. So... It's, again, pretty esoteric, but that's where I like to speak. And I, from what I can tell, you also enjoy. It's like for people to understand, your self-value never changes at the authentic level, right? And when people really understand that, like nobody can do anything to impact your self-worth. All that happens is on the superficial level, your human identity, your, your avatar of who you thought you were as an attorney, as a rugby player, as a professional actor. That was a particular chapter in your life where by virtue of the attention that you got, the perceived value you got in society, you were under the false impression that you were worth more. That's a superior complex. Conversely, somebody who was kicked out of their house, they were kicked out of boarding school, they didn't make the team that you did, you know, or they were a professional golfer who didn't get on the PGA Tour. They could equally go into, well, I'm less than, which would be the inferior version of that self-worth. Neither are accurate. They're just not. There's only one you on the planet of close to now 8 billion people, and that inherently has worth because you're an aspect of life and a unique one at that. When people start to feel into that, there's less preoccupation or concern with purpose or calling because purpose and calling to me are one of the ways that people try to create an antidote to a feeling of worthlessness. But if I know my worth is inherent, it's not to say that I'm not going to be of contribution to society or that I don't have a passion that I want to pursue, but it doesn't have the same undercurrent of feeling like I have to in order to feel like I'm justified being a member of the club or that my local community thinks that I'm worthy of going to their barbecue on Sunday or whatever it might be, right? It's like, no, I am an aspect of life. I'm an aspect of God, if you want to use that word. And for that reason, my value is inherent. It's innate. And I have a human experience where I might just be packing grocery bags at Tesco's. That doesn't make that person any less valuable at the realm that I speak from than somebody who's just won their third Academy Award. It's just something you're doing. But from the point of view of true spirit, everybody is, quote, unquote, of the same world. So that's the first thing I want people to understand. Because if you don't get that, then, yeah, you're going to be on this roller coaster oscillating from, oh, you feel good because you got promotion. Oh, but then you feel bad because you found out that your mate from college, he got a better promotion. <laughs> you know, And it's like now you're playing the comparison game and you're always going to be in this perpetual state of suffering. 
and you'll find relief at the end of the bottle or whatever you need. But if you know, wait, I'm an aspect of life that is inherent. No one can take that away from me. And now I get to explore. I get to reveal the degree to which I can fundamentally express that value into planet Earth and to make a difference. So for me, it comes down to being of service, right? And you started to speak to that a little bit when you realized that it wasn't all incumbent upon Johnny, that he could pass the ball to somebody else. That might look like you're playing a game of rugby, but to me, it's like you're being of service and you're handing over the perception of value to somebody else, right? When we applaud some of the athletes in the world, it's oftentimes not for what they did, but for what they did for somebody else that made their teammate look great, right? That's often, certainly by commentators, noted as, wow, that was like, that took a big human being who didn't want to score the goal themselves or whatever it might be. So for me, service calling is fundamentally boils down to two things. Being of presence, mean being where you are, because you also spoke to that, you were always in your future trying to avoid stuff. And then being uh, loving, which is kind, compassionate of your fellow man. Now, how that shows up, I could be at a petrol station and I notice that a woman gets out of her car and maybe she's well-dressed and she doesn't really want to touch the pump or whatever it is. And it might be, whether it's me or an 18-year-old kid who notices that and says, hey, let me do this for you. Like, did he change the world? No, but potentially hers for that 10, 15-minute interaction. And so it was presence. I noticed my surroundings and being of love and service that I made a difference. So for me, those are the two fundamental pillars of purpose and calling is that you're present with whoever you are and you're making some kind of difference. Then what the actual job description is, what you get paid for it, to me is rather irrelevant. If you're super talented, like obviously you were, or some of my athletes, like I'm a good athlete, but I'm not professional. I never turned professional. If I'd stayed in England, I, I did get you know picked up by Southampton for footy at a young age, and who knows that may have quote unquote turned me into a professional. But you know people have different levels of skill and talent, and be grateful for the fact you had the experience. I mean, you're in such a small percentage of human beings who get to experience what you did. I would want you to understand gratitude more than disappointment. Yeah, of course, you know, yeah. right? Which I'm sure you do now in hindsight, but. Yeah, so calling when people make these transitions, first of all, delineated as a chapter. I mean, parents feel this. I mean, they might not be like making millions of dollars and being professional athletes, but their son or daughter goes to university. And the mum all of a sudden is like, got no one's underpants to wash. Mm -hmm. And she's like, who am I? (laughs) You know, well, maybe you start painting or you go, you know, you go to your local community and you're contributing to the church or the yoga group or whatever it might be. It's just a different chapter. And if you look at any book that any of us have read and enjoyed, there might be a thread that goes through, but there's multitude of chapters. And so if the thread is my values intact, and then I get to dabble and try different things, that to me becomes an extraordinary life to live. Yeah, definitely. Certainly something I've noticed in my career and and certainly in my personality at times, and, and lots of it was that it's a gathering thing. Just grab more, mm-hmm. accumulate. You know, from a physical understanding, if I'm bigger, more people can see me. If I've got more, right. more people will know me. If I shine brighter, more people will recognize me. You know, all these kind of things of just add, 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 add. What does the work look like when people start to see the conflict and the immense suffering of the, you know, the unending stress of that cycle? It's freedom. 
you know, that's what it looks like. That's my main product, you know, like that to me is there's two predominant games that are afoot here on planet Earth as far as I'm concerned. There's the game of spiritual evolution, which is what I'm passionate about, and you seem to be now dipping your toe into. And then there's the game of human accumulation. Now, if you understand the two, what I was just speaking to about our, our net feeling of worth is inherent, like at the spiritual level. Like you can't be less than somebody else. You just you physically can't. But your human avatar, depending on whatever journey they're on and where they're at in that journey, could have the appearance of being more wealthy, more known, more famous, whatever it might be. So most people are playing the human game, right? They, to your point, want to accumulate more, more status, more money, more followers, more possessions. But think about the energy of more, right? Here in the States, particularly, which is where I'm based, you know, there's a million infomercials. And what do they always have, aside from the product that they're selling, that they're under the impression you want, then what comes after that is, wait, there's more. <laughs> if you're the first 500 callers, you'll get some shitty toaster you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. But because it appeals to more, what is actually triggering in a human being is the fundamental primal consideration for scarcity that I don't have enough. There's a, I am not enough, but there's a I don't have enough, right? It's still in the realm of scarcity. And that belongs to the human ego. The design and the, the actual structure of the human ego is inadequacy, insecurity, and scarcity. These are the three main constructs of an ego. Now, they can also drive, to your point, like perfectionism and working way too hard. So you seem to get results, but at great cost, as you realize, with all your injuries and God knows what else was going on in your life. So that journey of the human being is always compensatory. It's reactionary. It's being driven by lack. Now, as I said to a client once who recognized one of her predominant driving forces was not enough because of the way her dad spoke to her, and he was even saying things like, well, I'll give you the credit card if you want to go and get yourself some plastic surgery. Imagine hearing that from a dad. I mean, it seems like a, he's helping her out, but what he's actually saying is because she was a little bit conscious of herself, but there was no support or love for his daughter that way that she really wanted to hear. So anyway, she would do a lot of retail therapy, which obviously for women can be some form of escape. And I said to her one day, I said, there are not enough clothes in the world to compensate for your belief of inadequacy. And, and she really got it. Like, I, I don't care if you spend 10,000 you know, quid a day or 100, it doesn't matter because the mechanism that's driving your desire to get clothing to look a certain way is a compensation for something you can't eradicate because it's how you've identified yourself. And when she really got that, she saw the futility. That, to me, my friend, is the ultimate form of addiction. Substances are secondary. They're symptomatic. People have substance abuse because they have fundamentally an addiction with a feeling of inadequacy about themselves that can't be overcome until you see it for what it is, which is a lie. So the games that I'm playing are all about there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing to heal, there's nothing to complete, there's no one to become. And your human counterpart is by design the part of you that you're learning to love because it is flawed, it is imperfect. And so the degree to which we can find real love, to me, real love is making space for your flaws or imperfections. Your human part is the degree to which we find real freedom. So that, my friend, to answer your question, is what you get 
when you stop playing the human game of accumulation and more, which is driven by a mechanism that can't be reconciled because by default, you're always going to, from that perspective, feel inadequate. Now, here's the funny part. Part of my work is in Ayurveda. I don't know if you, you know what Ayurveda is, but yeah. it's a healing arm of yoga, yeah. diet and lifestyle. We have something called samprapti, which is a Sanskrit word, which really means the disease process. There's six stages of disease, right? And when I first saw this, because I was doing my work before I understood Ayurveda, I mean, I just sat there and chuckled to myself because the first stage of disease is accumulation. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so cool. here you are saying, I want more, I want more. Well, yes, that was the first stage of continual disease. Yeah. yeah. So when people are trying to get more, they're being driven, as I said, just to reinforce that people really get it. You're being driven by a mechanism that cannot be reconciled no matter how much more you get because you're under the impression through just literally linguistics, what I call a linguistic fortress in your head. You think you're not enough. You think you're not loved. You think you're not valued. That's not a truth. It's how you feel. And then you have whatever compensatory patterns you use, in your case, more, you need more titles, need more World Cups, you need more attention, you need more money. <laughs> yeah. like, but it, it would never cut it because what's driving the behavior can't be reconciled. And when people see that, not only is it so liberating to stop playing that mad game, but you actually ironically get everything you need because you were never missing anything in the first place. Yeah, and I think that immediate trust and connection to abundance as opposed to scarcity being that kind of shift. And that, mm -hmm. you mentioned the addiction to that sense of lack or insufficiency or not enough. And it's crazy mm -hmm. because in so many circumstances, there's a desire to feel it. And this is, yeah. I think, what happens, like I said, in the reaction is, I hate this, I hate feeling this, I want everything to be different and everything I'm doing is trying to make it different. But I can't help the fact that something about me keeps wanting me to feel it. I keep wanting yeah. to feel this because maybe I feel this is what I've known a lot. This is where I feel most comfortable, least threatened. When I feel so not enough, I don't feel threatened anymore because I'm already there and what have you. But that I find amazing. But also that reaction to it, as you said, more, more, more. It isn't for me necessarily. It wasn't for me objects and or maybe trophies, but it was more recognition, power status, those sort of things. But it was also a lot of do, do, do. Yeah, And, and a lot of that, shift or deepening or whatever it might be has been in the non-doing in yeah. in response in being able to say right hold on in the observation sure enough the witnessing the the loving attention the welcoming of feelings and all these kind of things and just sitting and allowing it sounds like you said quite untangible it makes it look it's almost like oh what's that all about but when you think about it it's the non-self-serving response that says yeah. these are my ideas and beliefs what is the one thing that doesn't serve them is to do nothing is that meditative side of it a big part of it for you and your way with people and if so do people find that challenging they do it depends on the individual i mean you spoke to so many things that are so poignant and powerful so there's an expression i use be do have which you might have heard which yeah. is very simple right but it just for the audience maybe people haven't heard it we want to have things right money a partnership a good body and we're under the impression that the way we get there is what we do. And I'm not denying there's an inextricable connection between action and results, right? But most people, when they go and see an expert, they go and see a teacher, a coach, they're looking at something, an instruction they're looking for in terms of what should I do? How do I, what should I do to lose weight? You know, what should I do to find the love of my life? What should I do to make more money? But they're missing the most powerful and 
like it's undeniably the source s-o-u-r-c-e of what you have which is who are you in the energetic signature like i said earlier one of my quotes is frequency precedes form frequency in this case is the being you're a human being not a human doing right and then you're going to by just continuation of that the cascade is you're going to have everything that is a direct extension of what you did but what you're doing is a byproduct of who you are who you are is based on the view you have of yourself so my work is about perspective one of my favorite quotes by marcel proust he said the journey of true discovery lies not in finding new lands but in looking through new eyes and the best example i can give when i first got here to the states I started my work with a lot of entertainers, actors and musicians. And acting is the perfect example of this, right? So take someone, I use the example of Tom Hanks when he played the gay guy dying of AIDS in Philadelphia. And he he did it so well, he won an Academy Award. Now, at some deeper level, Tom Hanks knows that he is not gay, he's married, and he doesn't have HIV. But there's a pretense. He pretended to play the role And because of who he pretended to be, he did doing different things (laughs) and he had different outcomes. So my work is all around programming. And again, as another perfect analogy, you open up a laptop, let's say you've got a Macintosh. I don't think anyone actually says the word (laughs) Macintosh anymore. (laughs) I was like, that's quite hysterical. But a Mac, (laughs) I've defaulted to some of my proper British because I'm talking to you, sort of got a bit sloppy here in the States. But anyway, uh, so you open up your Mac and you flip open iTunes. Nobody goes to iTunes and then gets upset that they can't do a spreadsheet for their boss about the accounting. Because it's not what iTunes is programmed for. (laughs) You listen to music, you buy music then you need to go to Excel or Microsoft something to do that, right? And people understand that. That's just basic programming. What people are not realizing, the same is true of your brain. If you're programmed in the words of, I'm not good enough, that's the who you're being, then your behavior has to be a natural extension of that. Either it's compensation, I'm trying to be like you, Johnny, a perfectionist, the people pleaser, the martyr, or I go into, fuck it, no one cares, and I'm just going to drink myself to death because I'm not good enough anyway. But you're still being defined by the fundamental program. So you can do everything you want in the realm of action to try and overcome, but it's going to be futile. Like think about how many people at the beginning of the year join a gym, they're paying their 50, 100 quid a month or whatever it is to try and get in shape. But it's only because who they think they already are is out of shape or fat. Well, you've pinned your foot to the floor and now you're trying to change behavior without changing your own identity. So for me... Why my work is so profound, it's about removing the constraints of your current dialogue, your narrative, revealing what's beneath that, which is freedom, love, inherent worth, a sense of power, and the possibility to consciously create the life you want. Then you will naturally do different things and consequently have different outcomes. I know it sounds very simple. It's not, but it it is in terms of the formulaic approach. So that, to me, answers your question of why, yes, doing nothing, sometimes sitting in meditation and realizing at a deeper level that, oh, I'm not this meat suit that's walking around. I'm not my inherent beliefs that I got from my parents about whatever they thought, but these are things that I've adopted, I've inherited. This is why I think, particularly here in the States, but all around the world, plant medicine has become very on vogue, you know, because people, whether they're doing ayahuasca or mushrooms or 
the I don't even know because I'm hopeless with drugs, but <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting glimpses of what they might call this universal love or my divine nature or my consciousness. And it's a glimpse of something outside of the constraints of their current identity. And that might seem like earlier when I was saying a kid who's watching you or a footy player, that seems like outside of who they are, but it's aspirational. It gives them a sense of what's now possible. And that's really my world. I traffic in possibility, not probability. And most human beings live in the world of probability. And that becomes, to your point, exhausting and tiresome and unfulfilling because you've got a sense of, oh, well, I knew that would happen. I knew he'd break up with me or I knew we would lose. Well, now you're in your mind and you're not living in the world of pure possibility and creativity. So, yes, it's a long-winded answer to the question, but if you don't do the inner work, it's like ripples on a pond. I use that image because it's helpful. The inner work is the stimulus for the ripples, right? The first drop. Then you've got the ripples of how do you think, how do you feel, how do you act, and then how do you have a result that is commensurate with that. Most people want different results, but they're not changing what created the ripples in the first place. That's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I think something that's been really, really big to me is the source of the being. Mm-hmm. is to understand the sheer power of that in terms of that you mentioned that frequency which then tends to inspire what is needed or what is right or what seems to fit the situation it inspires the perspective and the feeling the thought comes up that the the action versus the other way which feels like you're invested in making every level happen and it's that path of most resistance where it's all effort. And that was me, effort, stress. I've got to go and do this because if I don't do it, it sure as hell ain't happening. And if I don't do it, someone else will take it, scarcity. And if not, I'll never get it again, dialogue in my head and everything. And then there's this sense of becoming more in tune with being level and having that trust to say, in this state of being, it looks after what is right according to very much a more up-to-date now sense of living. I had a conversation with a 16-year-old or 15-year-old um, football player and someone had asked, would you have a chat? And I said, yeah, of course. And somewhere in the line of having the chat, I went from this idea, I just didn't buy into this idea that I was having a chat to do this because that was my role as this avatar and this is who you are, this is who I am, this is how it's going to be, I'll do this. It broke down very quickly to the point that my story dissolved and I felt like I was conversing and it was happening effortlessly. And it was not with, not with a younger individual. That story had all gone. It was almost two being level energies exchanging yeah. what was always meant to be exchanged, the way it was meant to be exchanged effortlessly. Yeah. But it was so fulfilling because it just didn't have the effort of being something that I wasn't. It was very, very authentic. And within that, there was no worry of, oh, I hope I'm of help and I hope I'm able to yeah. do this because it is what it is and yeah. it's how it's meant to be. And, and suddenly for me, it's been very key to have that relationship with somehow coming to know that sense of being when I feel that effort, that force, that how, how would you say, ah, oh, I'm in that space now. I can tell mm-hmm. I'm in that space or I can tell I was in that space versus this space. And w- what do you feel about the inspired, intuitive and insightful, creative, impulsive side that maybe gets is becoming more and more sort of put on the back burner whilst we control everything. So I would make the distinction between when there's a you and there's not a you, 
right? So when you're talking to the 16-year-old footy player, what I hear is the absence of John, yeah. which might seem counterintuitive, but you get it, right? So yeah. it's the absence of the human part of you where, oh, I hope I was of help. I hope I made a difference. So that's your narrative. So what I would assert, which people, again, I feel misunderstand the world, is you actually experienced intimacy. And that's why it was fulfilling. There was no illusion of separation. There was no you trying to do something for a him over there. You were in the flow of conversation. And this is like when I work with relationships, whether it be in a team dynamic or a leader trying to inspire his staff or just in a romantic situation, one of the things that most people don't do is listen because they're too concerned about, well, how does this either affect me? Meaning, what are they saying and how can I either benefit from it or am I in trouble so it's self-protective? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or how can I do something so that I seem of value? Either way, it's all I. And it's my shortest quote. I say, no, you, no problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Right? So in the absence of the idea of myself, I don't have suffering because I'm just in the flow of life as it unfolds. So that's the first thing I just want to acknowledge in you is that as Johnny softens, and I can really start to now see the tension that you lived in and the, one of the ways the world occurred to you, because we will behave completely in accordance with the way that we think the world is, right? And I'll give you an example in a minute. But the way that your world occurred to you, and what I'm saying, and you can play with the words, is it's up to you. It's up to John, right? From that perspective, you have no choice to work harder than anyone else to stay on the field longer than anybody else to take on the pressure of whatever the situation was. But it was only your view. It's not a truth, (laughs) right? And at one point you realize it was obviously detrimental to not only the impact on the team because that can create isolation. There's not reliance on your teammates, but it also to your own physicality and your injuries, right? So that's one part. To give the example that everyone can relate to is a couple of thousand years ago, people thought the world was flat, right? That's how the world literally occurred. And I, I guess there's still an argument from some people. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the flat world is out there. No offense. But when, when people thought the world was flat, and I'll ask you the question, if that's how it occurred, what was the main fear that people had? Yeah, coming to the end. Yeah, falling off the edge, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so if the world is a flat, then the concern is I'm going to fall off the edge. Now, that fear is completely appropriate for the way that the world's seen. And I often joke, if I was back in the day a tech guy and I came up with an ankle bracelet that detected through a laser how far the horizon was, <laughs> I would have been a billionaire because everyone would want to buy one. Yeah. Right? Now you start to realize, well, shit, you jump as high as you can. You're not going to yeah. fall off the yeah. wall. I'll, yeah. I'll give you about two feet if you're an yeah. athlete and then you're coming straight back. <laughs> yeah. Right. But nonetheless, the fear and the human disposition was appropriate for the lens that they looked for. Right? So that's one thing for people to understand is that you're acting and behaving in accordance in the way that you view the world. And that includes other people. If you view somebody as fancy, important because they're famous, or you view someone as less than you, you'll behave in accordance. That's it. So if you want to change the way you act and the results you get, you've got to look at the view that you have. Now, to go back to that kid and the 16-year-old, it reminds me of a 13-year-old junior golfer that was brought to me by a mum because he was having tantrums on the golf course. He was throwing his clubs from time to time if he wasn't playing at the level that he obviously felt he should. And so we sat down and we had a beautiful conversation. I talked to him about, you know, what are your aspirations? And he said, well, I want to be on the PJ Tour. 
I was like, okay, amazing. And I said, who do you admire out there? I work with a lot of PGA Tour players. And he said, well, I love Adam Scott and Luke Donald and a couple of other. And I said, yeah, they're great guys. And I said, they're really professional, right? And he said, yeah, I love watching them. I said, do you ever see them throw their clubs in tournaments? And he said, well, no. And I said, okay, so that's your first sign that you're off track, right? Because you just told me you want to be a PGA Tour player, but you're equally watching PGA Tour players not do that. So... I said to him, okay, so interesting. So you're 13. Let's say if everything goes to plan, you could maybe become a PGA Tour player when you're 19, 20, 21, depending on whether you go to university or whatever. I said, so at what point are you going to start behaving like a PGA Tour player? I said, you didn't come to me as a 13-year-old and wonder how you're going to become a 22-year-old. Like there's an inbuilt understanding that that is an integral part of your future. That's where you're going naturally. I said, but the way you're currently behaving shows me that you're not interested in being a PJ Tour player. You're interested in being right. You're interested in sulking. You're interested in feeling sorry for yourself. And he really got it. I said, so like Michael Phelps, before he won five, 15, God knows how many gold medals, did he just show up and go to Beijing? Oh, shit, or London. Like, wow, there's some really good swimmers here. I should have practiced. Like, <laughs> no, he's behaving like a gold medalist four years prior to an event. So that to me introduces like what I love about what you said about this kid is you didn't see him as younger. And that to me is one of my favorite things that I'm working on right now is the collapsing of time, right? That we're under the impression that we're going from A through B to C, past, present, future. And there's this sort of understanding of this linear progression, but it's a complete disservice because it thwarts, to go to the last part of your question, accessing potential. Because we're under the impression that I'm becoming someone and I'm trying to get somewhere. And what it does is it reinforces that I'm not someone and I'm not somewhere, (laughs) which creates suffering and misery or a lack of fulfillment. But I am everything I'm looking for and I am where I want to be. And in this eternal now, rather than fulfilling on potential or trying to get to potential, I'm simply allowing potential to unfold. And that, to me, is akin to a Christmas present. The present is there. You're just removing the wrapping. It's not that it was never there. You're not trying to get to the present. No, life is a process of slowly giving you friction in trials and tribulations to remove what's in the way of you actually understanding your divine, complete nature. Now, that might sound poetic, but it's so powerful when you get it because I'm no longer trying to compensate for my inadequacies, insecurities, or scarcities. And I'm certainly not under the impression that my happiness is in the future somewhere when I finally get everything perfect. That is a death sentence, right? Because you'll never get there. Why? Because you've never been in your future. It's so really brilliant. And I think it's, it's funny you're talking about that because the time thing has been really interesting to me in that I was someone, as we mentioned about the accumulation idea that, that very much building up the identity of what you, yeah, the old idea of everything I've been through, I'm, I've accumulated and, and it's who I am now. So I was always, if you like, carrying with me this past of who I am, mm-hmm. which was almost yeah. determining the future of who I am. I almost kind of think of it as that last bit of curved train track that I reach back and put in front of me. And it just keeps me going round and round and round. (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting that suddenly what happens with that kind of shift, wherever it's come about and however it's come about, suddenly it's the concept that that past is no longer something of me. It's memory that's here and now and available, as is the future isn't something ahead of me. It's something here in me as imagination. 
And now, now you just can't buy into that idea. When people say to me, tell us about that moment. I don't go back there. Mm -hmm. I find whatever mood I'm in mm -hmm. is how I use the memory and piece it together. And I keep telling the story differently about a kick I did at, at you know, and, and I can't, every time they ask me and I'm suddenly speaking to someone else about, you know, an hour later and I'm kind of like, it's kind of, and I'm like, Jesus, am I just an entertainer am i just like spinning yarns for people yeah but actually it's just depending on the energy you feel with someone and it is really really truthful in that way but the thing about the unwrapping of the present which feels really really big is this idea i feel like often people with, with the think positive idea and i was certainly part of this to be like okay well we've got to take away that thought and give you another one so that one that you're holding on to which is holding you back or weighing you down let go of that mm -hmm. here's another one that's better and you're kind yeah. of like, yeah, but I'm still holding it versus that idea. I think with, with the people that I coach, because there's the willingness. And like you said, there's almost this knowledge that they already are what they want to be, that capacity is within them, that when it's revealed, the intelligence of the progression or the activity belongs in them already. And it, almost creating that internal open mm -hmm. state allows the body to do intelligently so much more than if you script to the body and the mind, right? A, do this, then do B, then do C, then do E, then do F, yeah. and you should get it. Whereas when you just reveal the energy of desire plus the innate visualization of what they want, plus the sense of worthiness and the, the sheer knowing of it, and then it just happens. Effortlessly. Effortlessly. Yeah. Versus yeah. this idea about these... you've got to replace, yeah. So there's so many things that come to mind and I love the conversation around past and future because time to me is one of the biggest dysfunctions humans have. They really think they have a past and that they're working towards some future. Never. You don't have a past, you have a memory, as you said, and your future is just purely speculation. It's an imagined outcome. So when I really got that, that there's no such thing as a future and the future and the past are occurring in the moment, like it literally changed my life. And I realized that they're like mirrors. And that's why my quote came to me, a past hurt informs future fear. They occur together. Yeah. And this is going to blow people's <laughs> minds. What I also realized is that people think they can change their future. I'm like, no, you can't. First of all, you're never in it. But you can change your history. And people are like, yeah, what? Yeah. yeah, wow. Now, so that's where it was really powerful. And I'll use myself as an example. Not the events of your history, but the narrative and the story yeah. about it. And that's what defines you. So for me personally, mum dies when I'm six, dad that goes to work when I'm 17, never comes back. I'm an only child. The whole narrative around my history was lost. You can imagine, like in the most loving and well-intended ways, my friends and people at school were, sorry for your loss. Oh, that's a terrible loss. Oh, how hard for someone at your age to lose their parent. Like the narrative was around loss. So the first time I met someone that I fell in love with, sort of in my late 20s, the dialogue now that I was already like sentenced to was the pain of loss because my parents dying was very painful and scary and I didn't have anyone else going for all resources. So of course, I'm going to protect myself. The brain is designed to predict and protect. That's how we survive, right? So the loss narrative led me to then be in love with someone who adored me. She wasn't going anywhere, but my way of relating to her was don't lose her. Like, so then I became the perfect boyfriend and it was all compensation and doing, I was very generous and loving. Naturally, I didn't need to do extra, right? But that was energetically the precursor to her ironically leaving me, which was the best gift in the world, because then I was left with the story of loss. It was devastating until I realized it was all made up. And that's where I changed my history. Didn't mean my parents came back, but they didn't lose them. They died. 
Now, that might seem a little more cold or callous. I love my dad. My dad adored the shit out of me. And I was so blessed to have a man who adored me for 17 years, while some people have a, a dad for 70 who never says he loves them or whatever. But I changed my history and I was free from it. And that's what completely altered the trajectory of my life. But I still, as it relates to the future, don't know what's going to happen. And that's what gave me freedom on that side, as opposed to trying to control. There's an avoidant energy that most people have, which is they, this is the, you'll find this fascinating, especially because you did it for many years as a professional, but like one brain is predicting, projecting, imagining a worst case scenario that you don't want. That's an avoidant energy. And then that same brain is trying to calculate strategies to avoid it. Not realizing, wait, I made it up in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you wonder why people need a couple of beers at the end of the day, or worse. Right. So so anyway, the whole conversation around time to me is fascinating because people are under the impression they're in this linear trajectory and they're just not. I speak about vertical ascension, which is where you change your frequencies, no different to a radio. If you're listening to, let's say, some classic rock and it's, I don't know, 105.5 FM, like you don't try and force R&B, you know, or classical music into, you change the frequency on the radio and effortlessly the music arrives. So when you change your frequency, your signature, your identity, which is in language, sound, it's still vibration, then you will think, feel, and do different things and naturally get different outcomes. And that's why it really is the cascade of creation when you understand it. And then you attract a different future. You literally change your relationship to your history. You become free of it. Most people are walking around with the quintessential baggage, right? Like, why does a woman attract a man who's a bit abusive, whether it be verbally or, God forbid, physically? Hopefully not. But, you know, there's a conversation that she's become accustomed to her history that she thinks she's worthless, and she attracts somebody who will mirror that. Or like a sports team that hasn't done very well for a while, they're dragging their history around. That means they can't be present. If you're not present, you can't access your power to perform because you're basically living, looking over your shoulder. So driving a car, but you're looking in the rearview mirror and you're wondering why you keep running into shit. It's like, well, because you're looking backwards, you idiot, right? So when you understand the nature of time, accepting your history, living in complete faith and trust that you don't know what's going to happen, then you become free. And in the energetic signature of freedom, you become a beacon for much bigger possibilities than you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. I like to, we're going to have to finish this at some point, but what's really, really exciting, I think is the way you think there's a limit to this. There isn't the very nature of people saying the one thing is, oh, you can't change your past. That's one of the biggest things there is. You can't change, you know, okay, you can't change what's happened, but essentially what's happened isn't the issue. It's what we think about what's happened. And in essence, you can change everything. I thought that like when I mentioned about a couple of things that I hung on to in my life as a kid, they were around events that something that happened and afterwards I couldn't let it go. I yeah. couldn't let it go. And I'd have given anything for someone yeah. to say to me, um, what everyone said was, look, it's gone now. You can't change it. Yeah. You just got to move on. What I would have given anything to come over and be like, yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because you can change that if you want. I mean, yeah. it's so beautiful to have a different opportunity than as a child yes. being told, it is what it is, tough luck, suck it up, get on with it. As opposed to being able to say, you know what, you can change your past. You can change yeah. your past and open up your future. You can be whoever you want to be. You can uncover boundless stuff to me. So it's not a game of 1% increases. It's a game of quantum leaps. 
Over 100%. Um, and one of the things you said I'd like to just finish on, I love the idea of saying that living in that space of what you're talking about, here, this kind of potential, this different relationship with the unknown and with the who we are and the, the self-worth, and it is that life is so surprising mm-hmm. constantly. And I think that's the bit that people talking about needing to be entertained and how everything's so boring and monotonous and it's always this and always that, expecting the outside world to do something to make things better. And yet the 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 kind of experience that seems to be out there for people who are sort of falling into this deeper opportunity is that there's no end to the surprise, the fascination. Yeah. Every interaction, every person, everything, every being, every... And yeah. I used to think that was a best thing about being a young professional rugby player was that as the better you got, the more surprises you got because people wanted to give you stuff for free. And, you know, (laughs) so you're kind of like, I kind of like this. I'm doing what I love doing and being who I want to be. I love what I love doing. And there's surprises around the corner the whole time. And then I suddenly realized that wasn't to do with being a young professional rugby player. That was to do with being connected to self-worth and actually just going out there and saying, I'm in, let's give it a go and I'll stay open. I love it, mate. I say, you know, one of my shortest expressions, I say, let life surprise you. And it speaks to, as Einstein said, either you look at everything as a miracle or nothing as a miracle, as you know, as it relates to life. And it's really beautiful. I want to give you something that I think might be the most profound thing that both you and people can take away here because of what you just shared. But I do concur. I think being human is a gift. I had a beautiful dog for 13 years. He, he passed uh, about four years ago, but he wasn't sitting there contemplating his existence. He wasn't in self-reflection with other dogs about, you know, why do you think that happened? Why did that dog bark <laughs> at me? You know, it's like mm. they, they're just in a constant state of presence, which is beautiful itself. But I think when we're born into the human experience, that we have the capacity to self-reflect such that we can reveal our divine nature that is timeless, that is eternal, that is limitless. And that's what inspires me, um, is to dissolve the perceived limitations. They're only perceived so that we can recognize our own inherent divine nature. And divine might seem a little bit, you know, highfalutin for people, but basically boundless nature, that we are love, we are freedom, we are power, we are worth, it's there. And then we have the illusion of not that in our own dialogue, right? So that's the game for me, is it's a revelatory process. It's exploring our nature. It's not trying to get to somewhere or become someone. It's like I already am, I'm just removing the perceived limitations that are in the way of me discovering my own magnificence, right? So with regards to you as a kid, and you said, you know, there were certain things that you just, you know, you struggled with and you wished that you could have let go of. Your language was, I just couldn't let go. And the reason is because you weren't trying to let go of the event. The event in the way that it happened was commensurate with the way that you viewed yourself. So think about the languaging. I couldn't let go. The I that you perceived yourself to be at that moment was defined by the event. That's why you can let it go. Isn't that amazing? So if you really understand, and this, again, might be one of the most profound parts of this conversation, albeit there's been many, you're never letting go of an event. You're letting go of the you that was associated with the event. To be alive is to constantly die to the idea of yourself. And most people don't want to do that. And for that reason, their life is predominantly stagnant. And I don't mean that in a form of judgment, but as an opportunity for people to see you did what you did at the time that you did it within the level of awareness you had and the degree to which you can find like a sense of compassion and humanity for who you were then is the degree to which you can let go of not the event, 
but the you you were that made the choice at that time, you did the best you could. So continue to evolve, not by letting go of things, but letting go of the idea of yourself. That is the path to enlightenment. <laughs> Beautiful. And, and, and exactly as you said, but that's taking the wrapper off. You know, it's, that's yeah. shedding, that's shedding that layer of, and I, I know I looking at back at it now, there's no way I could let that go because I was too invested in the process that the I was about what I was accumulating. And I, yes, I'd accumulated that. And because I'd accumulated that, the I wasn't about letting or, or, you know, evolving the I. And just it, so therefore it was a process. And it's one I look back compassionately on now to say, how long does it take to have a bit of a shift like this? And the answer for me, when I think about it, is that the shift always happens now. Yes, always. Because that there's no intense. time. I like to think, well, I started, I started, I probably had a bit of a crisis moment. I started to look at it differently when about 2006, 2007. And then, but I had it for 2000. And I'm like, no, 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 that isn't yeah. how it is. No. It's now. It's always. But, but when you're in that process of being like, well, actually, time's, life's about time and past, the answer you give them is once the shift happens, you'll realize it was now. Yeah. This is why I love working with athletes. And, you know, like, look at golf, and I'll, I'll give you one story about a baseball player, but like a handicap is literally a handicap psychologically as far as I'm concerned. Like if someone goes out there and they're a 14 handicap and they're like, say, two under on the front line, they will, unbeknownst to them, find a way to shoot 10 or 11 under <laughs> on the back. Uh, yeah. Sorry, 10 or 11 over, over right? exactly, to, to, justify yeah. Their, to, yeah. their, to justify their identity. And this is why when I work with sports teams, invariably what's holding them back is nothing to do with talent, nothing to do with dedication, nothing to do with their practice, but rather everything to do with their history and how they've learned to define themselves as we're not as good as X or we're failures or we're the losers. Or one of my baseball players, he hadn't had a home run for almost the span of a season, albeit it was across two seasons, like the last two months or three months of one season going into two months of the next. It was about six months. And he was a middle-of-the-road size guy. The big guys hit about 30 home runs a year. The smaller guys, maybe five or six. So he traditionally, he'd had a career of maybe six, seven years already, would hit 15 or 16 so home runs. And he hadn't had one. So you can imagine, professional athlete, again, a lot at stake. He's being paid a lot of money and there's a lot of pride at stake. So he's sitting in his car, the car park outside of the stadium before a game. And, you know, like I'm sure with your sport, they got there a few hours before, they're warming up, doing physio, eating, whatever. And uh, he said, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm uh, so upset. I'm just like concerned and the guys are starting to give me shit. And, you know, because you know what men are like <laughs> together in a locker room or a changing room. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, don't worry. Maybe you're not a power player. You know? yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I took him to the place that I said, what if for the rest of your career, and he probably had a good five years left in him, you never hit another home run. Now, I'm not saying that's what you want and it's not what I want for you. But what if that never happened? Because what was happening is he hadn't had for a long time, and then, as I said, past her failures is informing his concern that he might not have. So he's stepping up at the baseball plate, trying to hit like basically seven runs off one, which he can't do. But that was the effort that he was giving. And I said, what if you never hit another one for the rest of your life? Are you going to be okay? And it took him a minute, and he said, yeah, I mean, I'll make it. You know? And so what we did is we actually cleaned out his future which was the concern for that he might not because he integrated the fact that that was a possibility in the realm of all possibilities, not hitting a home run, unlikely, but possible, but he found acceptance. And so he no longer had a future that he was worried about, which was creating his anxiety and tension and 
extra effort in the moment. That night, I kid you not, like his second at bat, and most baseball players get about four goes around, he hit this beautiful home run. He sent me the most beautiful tech. Like, but this is instantaneous. So you talk about the collapsing of time. It's not like somebody had to work on. He didn't have yeah. to get stronger in the gym or work on his mechanic. He'd let go of a future anticipation that he was trying to avoid, and he was free. And the text he sent was so beautiful. He said, I've never felt so free in effort. He said, I can't even remember any effort or strike on the ball as I hit it. Right, So that is that poetry in motion, that flow state of being in the zone. And for me, as an athlete, as Jack Nicklaus said perfectly, you know, greatest golfer that ever lived, he said one of the most important parts of winning is being okay losing. Not because he wanted that, but if you're okay with it, you no longer worry about it and it gives you permission and freedom to perform. The image I grew up with or the message I grew up with was look at these guys. Yeah. They're so great because they just won't accept losing. Right. And of course, that message is that's invincibility. The guys that you want to be are the guys that never lose. Like you mentioned about perfect in the beginning. But the beauty of of this as a message, even if it's not in the deepest spiritual sense of, of finding that ultimate freedom, but for the initial triggering of understanding that actually there's that humility that's just so powerful in that self-expression and being okay with losing is huge. It doesn't mean you don't want to win. No, 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 no. It's quite the opposite. Actually, I would say it's the antithesis. You're not okay losing. You're not free. If you're not free, you can't perform to the best of your ability. You might Absolutely. force situations, yeah. Yeah. but it's not powerful. And that's one of the distinctions I talk about. You know, a lot of athletes are forceful, even in their own lives, right? They break down because they're just trying to force shit. To me, powerful is creative. If you're you're not okay losing, you're in a constant state of reaction. You're trying to avoid something. If you clean out the future because there's nothing there, now you're left with the power to create something. As they say, I don't know whose quote it was, and it was a Mercedes or someone, they said the best way to predict the future is to create it. Yeah, amazing. But you can't create a powerful future if you already think there's one there that you don't want. Yeah. There's already something in the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that way you're trying to change it, not create it. Totally different. Exactly. Yeah. Totally different. Entirely different world, yeah, that may that may be the quote I might go away with. <laughs> that yeah. sums it up beautifully. Peter, yeah. thank you so much, mate. There is there is so much more to go into, but I'm going to allow so much to to unfold in the process. And if you're open to it, I'd love to come back and uh, love some, to. Some Maybe point. we can do it in person next oh, time. Oh yes, yeah. Mind was... you, your setting looks pretty good. I'll come to you. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, come here. I uh, was just there headlining an event in Somerset, a limitless okay, festival, nice. which was amazing. And, the things that talk about let life surprise you, moment after moment after moment, I was introduced to you know some of the people we've mentioned that we know mutually and the opportunity to maybe work with some sports teams over there, which has got me inspired to, like maybe life is pulling me to come and spend some time back in the homeland. So yeah, a lot of opportunities and possibilities that I'm very flattered by. I will, I will take one of those if you're ever uh, in the in the homeland. So yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Peter, thanks again, mate. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your 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 energy and your attention. Awesome. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. 
This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. 